In today's episode of the podcast, I sit down with Norelle Fraser to talk mental health in the workplace. After an impressive 27-year career with the Victoria Police specialising in sex offences and child abuse investigations, our guest Norelle Fraser found herself at a crossroads. A sudden diagnosis of post-traumatic stress injury forced her to bid farewell to a career that she loved. In the aftermath of that diagnosis, Norelle embarked on a journey to not only reclaim her own mental well-being, but also to advocate fiercely for opening the conversation around mental health. She now hosts her own podcast, Norelle Fraser Interviews, which explores the human side and impact of crime, and she is a keynote speaker and presenter with an ability to connect with audiences of all backgrounds. Norelle's humility and kindness shines through as we delve into a conversation that goes beyond the surface. This episode is a testament to her strength and the importance of breaking the stigma around mental health. I thoroughly enjoyed our chat and I'm sure you'll find her insights both enlightening and empowering. All right. Welcome, Narelle. Welcome to the Kafkan Bond podcast. It's so lovely to have you here with me today. Thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with me. Um, your experience has been incredible um, and I was lucky enough to hear you speak at the SAAA Women's in Finance Luncheon and was blown away by your story. Um, perhaps for our listeners, you could provide just a, a bit of a snapshot of who you are, um, your background, and I guess the, the core values that you stand for now. Sure. Um, I heard an expression the other day, which I think describes me very well, my upbringing. It was very beige. Um, <laughs> I, I grew up um, with two sisters, mum and dad, um, uh, you know, we were working, mum and dad were very working class. Um, my dad died very early. Uh, I was 18 when my dad died, um, just very suddenly, just out of nowhere. He was 51. Oh, my God. When I got to wow. 51, I just wanted to get over it. I'm thinking, my God. <laughs> oh, but, goodness um, me. Yeah, so he left um, mum with three teenage daughters. I was 18, a sister 17 and a sister 16. And wow. um, But I think I don't see myself as strong, but a lot of people do. But I think I must get um, my strength, my resilience maybe um, from my mum. I mean, my mm. dad obviously had a big say in it, but after dad died, um, you know, Mum had a huge amount of responsibility. She didn't have any money. We didn't have any money. Um, and um, But I, I had a very happy, um, you know, very content childhood. Um, you know, I was uh, loved, um, always had a roof over my head. Um, anyway, and then and I went to um, Morty Alec Chelsea High, and I left at about 14 because school just wasn't, I just wasn't a scholar. Yeah. And mum had been a secretary, so I followed in mum's footsteps and uh, became a secretary. I loved mm. it. But then when I was about 25, I think one day I, I don't know how I got involved, but I started to think about a volunteering as a lifeline counsellor. Yeah. And I did that and I loved it. But what I found there was that with Lifeline, if somebody rang Lifeline and they were really distressed, you'd, you know, you'd help them through it. But sometimes they wanted to end their lives. Sometimes they were going to harm someone or themselves, whatever. Yeah. And I can always remember we would ring the police like this. It was it had to be, you know, dire for us to ring yeah. them. But we did. And I used to think to myself, what a great job to be able to help mm. somebody at that moment in their life where they thought there was nothing and maybe I could help them get over that minute, yeah. that hour. And as a police person, you can, you can actually do something. You can find them accommodation. You can find them food. You can find them shelter. And I also wanted to help the people before they got to that point where they were ringing yeah. out. You know, so yeah. um, that's where my interest in policing started. But 
I was a black sheep. Like there was no, I had no friends that were police, uh, no family. It just, I don't know, it just ha- almost happened out of the blue, I suppose. Yeah. But I can tell you now, Tali, the minute that, and I was very fit at the time. So this was when I was uh, 27. Yeah. It's when I actually joined. And I'd, um, you know, done a fair bit of travelling around Australia in a combi with girlfriends, you know, and to be honest, I thought, I'd seen a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd had, you'd already gone through a lot by that point in your life as well. I, I don't see it like that, Tali. Like, I suppose you're talking about my dad passing away, but, um, you know, time is a great healer. I'm not saying it forever heals. Like, I miss dad. I think about him a lot. But um, in time, things do get better. And, you know, I don't know. Looking back, yeah, at 51, that was very young for, you know, a parent to die. But um, anyway, yeah, so when I joined policing, it was almost like it was meant to be. I was really fit. Uh, I, I Everything just fell into place. And when I went out to the academy, um, oh, my goodness, I'd never, ever seen or experienced like authoritarianism, I think is the word, mm. like Fraser. Um, <laughs> Pull your hair back. Fraser, one of those wispy bits. Fraser, um, get in there. You know, like that yeah. real, it was tough. But I knew from the minute I joined, Did you love it? this is me. Yeah. 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 Were, there, were there many other females around you at that point as well when you were going through the academy? Uh, there was five in my squad, which was quite a few. Uh, and we all graduated. Um, a couple um, didn't uh, last very long. Um, but I, there wasn't a lot of police women. Certainly when I went out um, in my training, when I went out to, I did my training at St Kilda. And boy, if I thought I'd seen a lot when I was travelling around Australia in a combi, wow, I had seen nothing. I, I just saw a different side of life that I never ever uh, knew existed like people that were just so drug affected um, prostitution like sex workers and it was a real eye-opener and people that were just so distraught distressed it was it was a real eye-opener but this is going to sound like I'm a bit full of myself but I felt I had the right personality. I genuinely cared for them and I genuinely wanted to hold their hand, take them somewhere, get them some help. And I think people, I think they saw that. Um, Mm. And I don't know where that comes from. I've always um, cared for people, but this was just another level. Do you think... um there were many of your colleagues around you that were presenting those same personality traits. Was that quite common or not so much no, the case? No, yeah. it, no in fact, um, most places that I went, I was um, one of maybe two policewomen compared to, you know, 40 policemen. Like there was, uh, it was very, very male-oriented. And my caring sort of, personality it was actually almost not beaten out of me but it was um um not encouraged and it was like I I tell a story of um, the first time I was on the div van at St Kilda and I'm there with a man who was um a seasoned like he'd been a policeman forever and we're on the div van and we go down Grey Street St Kilda and I was saying something about uh, I had never seen a sex worker, yeah. like I'd never seen it in action sort of. And he said, there's one over there. And he said, call her over. So I wound down my window and I said, no, excuse me. And she started to come over and the guy said, pull your window up. And I pulled up my window and he said, don't ever speak to one of those, pardon me, they used to call them crows, that's right. He said, don't ever speak to a crow like that. And I said, so how do you speak to them? So he said, wind down the window. So I wound down the window and he said, hey, over here. 
but that was and that was the start of um, what I realised was it was it, it was cruel to be honest, Tully. But that's yeah. that's how it was, you know. I'm I'm not agreeing with it. Uh, I'm not disagreeing with it. It was just how it was. But so it was pummeled out of me almost that caring side. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine. Like, do you re- remember what was going through your head at that time when that was happening? Oh, I was horrified. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I am never, no matter what anyone says to me, I am never going to treat anybody like that. In fact, I believe that the sex workers that were down at St Kilda, I believe they needed more care and love Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and support than, you know, almost anyone. And um, anyway, yeah, I used to get a bit stirred about the fact that um, I was you know, sort of caring, understanding, and I actually did care for them. That's really full on. Did you um? Yeah. Did you feel there was extra pressure as well that you placed on yourself when you entered the force? To at times show a, a harder exterior just to prove yourself because of the fact that you were a female in the force? Um don't really know. Um, mm. I, I think that I can't, you can't, well, I can't, I couldn't change my personality. Yeah. Um, I don't really know. That's a, a hard question. But I, 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 I certainly had to curtail things and there were some things that I just had to go along with because if I didn't, I would have been ostracised. And this is shameful. You know, I feel yeah. it, it's, um, you know, a bit two-faced. But there were times when I saw things, I heard things that I thought, oh, my God, I don't believe what I'm seeing or what I'm hearing. But I also used to think to myself, if I wasn't there, who would be there to care for somebody? Yeah you know, or to um, take them back home. Like I remember one time I took a, um, a sex worker home in the back of the div van because she was just so distraught over something to do with a boyfriend and I took her home mm. and, oh, I wasn't popular, you know, because I had shown again that um, that care. But you know what? It didn't – I didn't care about yeah. the – well, I did care to a point about how I was perceived by my colleagues, but isn't it funny when they wanted somebody to talk? Mm-hmm. Your skill set came in handy then. <laughs> yeah. But that yeah. wasn't often, mind you, because in those days it wasn't about getting somebody to talk. It was uh, there was a lot of I'm sorry, but a lot of beltings, a lot of really mm-hmm. inappropriate physical. Um, um, oh. God, it, it, it horrified me. But I thought to myself, again, God, if I'm not there to sort of bring some sort of equality, yeah. what the hell? Oh, I it, thought it was a, a skill to get somebody to like you and talk to you as a policewoman because they were very, very unpopular down at St Kilda. Yeah. Well, in general, I think police are there when... Um, yeah, police aren't all that popular unless you need them. <laughs> yeah. And so I really wanted to, um, I don't know, change people's minds a bit and say, you know, there are some of us that care. <laughs> yeah. There's so much in that. Firstly, just about the the shame aspect of at times staying quiet. It's such a shame that we have to feel that shame because – I think we're all guilty of it, realistically. We've all turned a blind eye once in our lives, and I think it's really important to to vocalise those times when we have done so to kind of reduce the stigma around it because it happens in a lot of industries too. Um, And unfortunately, there's so many times where you're constantly juggling that uh, objective to grow your career, or even if it's not to grow your career, it's just to, to to continue to have a place at the table versus mm. speaking up for what we think is right. Mm. Do you think there's been some some positive changes in the force over that 
over your own career or even oh, post your career? Oh, oh definitely. Uh, things have certainly changed. Like back when I started, um, emotional intelligence was not something that anybody ever whispered, ever thought about, ever knew about. Yeah. But now, every uh, almost every aspect of policing has changed, and now it is about talking to people. Is it is about rather than um, dealing with aggression with aggression. It's about somebody's aggressive, you learn to, you know, just listen, whereas police weren't good at listening when I first started. Now what they teach policing is about listening, is about, you know, not telling people what to do, like more Mm. like letting them vent. And so often if you don't deal with aggression with aggression, the people are going to run out of steam, you know, the ones that are, oh, yeah, yeah. If you just say, if you just be quiet, generally the, uh, the mood, the anger will subside. Yeah. And so we have come a long way in that. Yeah. And also um, equality. Uh, women, like when I first started, we weren't uh, allowed to wear pants. We had to wear a dress. Uh, I mean, sorry, a, a policewoman's skirt. Then it went to colots, colots, <laughs> and yeah, geez, it was a good look. I can tell oh you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, and and we also had um, our gun was in a handbag, and the boys had guns on their hips. Like it was in a handbag. How yeah. is that practical? <laughs> well, oh goodness me. <laughs> yeah. So. When you ask, has it changed enormously? But it would need to. But, yeah. but wouldn't you agree that um, in general, the community is changing, and and we are police are just a representation of the community. You know, people come from all different walks of life, all different genres, or a whole lot of things. So yes, we've come a long way, and now we now have police reporting on other police that have acted inappropriately. And I think that is fantastic because, as I keep saying, in my day, you had to turn a blind eye. And I was also always very ashamed of having to, or not having, I did, I turned a blind eye because I wanted to be, oh, not so much popular, but I loved the job. Yeah. And, and if you I was be comfortable, I would have been ostracised. Yeah. So, yeah, but it's a something I live with, the shame of not um, saying anything. But, you know, I have to live with that. Hmm. I mean, there's, there's so much that you've done that more than offsets the shame that you should feel for turning a blind eye. You did so many things to help our community. So I'm sorry that you still feel that way. And I know that me saying that probably doesn't take it away but for what it's oh, worth, helps. yeah, <laughs> you, you've been incredible. Um, when you were were going through some of the the tough things that you were going through throughout your working life, how was that showing up in your relationships outside of work? It didn't because mm-hmm. I kept it. Um, you had Very. your life as a policewoman, yeah, or as a police person. I had that life. But I didn't share that life with anybody, not even my husband. Sometimes my sisters, sometimes my girlfriends, but it would generally be when I'd had a few to drink and I would, uh, you know, I'd um, my facade was yeah. sort of crump- had crumbled a little bit. But I used to think I don't think other people need to hear, although it's sometimes it's fascinating. I don't think people need to hear about. Um, I don't think they can bear listening to the cruelty that I saw, um, the, the sadness, the effect that crimes have on people, particularly um, women, uh, rape victims, um, victims of, you know, horrendous sexual assaults. And and I, I, I didn't share a lot of that. So I can see how police become very insular. Because yeah. other police understand, but 
people outside don't. And why would you bring them into that world of, you know, sadness, pardon me, and cruelty and all that sort of stuff? So it was um, very different. But I did love seeing my girlfriends that weren't in the job. And I have a, you know, I have a, a wide range of friends and I found that they um, made me touch, made me touch base with reality. Kept my feet yeah. on the ground. They would talk about, you know, we'd go out for a few drinks, and they'd talk about, um, oh, I can't believe it, Kinder. You know, I, I don't know. Um, somebody took my car space, or yeah, uh, the, the, kids the more trivial things. Anything. It was nice to hear the normal <laughs> stuff. Yeah, the normal problems. That's right. Um, you know, the kids not putting stuff away up, you know, their bedrooms were messy. Oh, I don't know, just general stuff. Um, it was it was nice to hear that because that's normal. What I was seeing and dealing with wasn't normal. However, it all um, eventually, and we'll get to it, I know, but um, putting up that, that facade for so long, it's only so long you can put up that facade. I know, yeah. And then things just start to crumble. Well, I mean, and it's a testament to your character too to be able to sit and listen to those sort of, I guess, more trivial problems and not be frustrated by it because I imagine there's a lot that um, have totally opposite reactions to what you have had in those situations where you might be seeing really horrible things day to day and then you sit down at the end of the day and hear about, you know, frustrations over the dishes not being done and it would just cause you to explode. Um, so I do think that's a testament to your character because you've obviously got a really caring nature. When you say that um, it's quite common for the force to be quite insular, was there any talk amongst colleagues at the time for you about the things that you were seeing or even then was it still kind of buried under a rug? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. in fact, you know, when you ask the question, you know, I'm thinking to myself, so who did I tell? <laughs> there was probably very few people. Uh, I mean, at the rape squad, for instance, when I was at the rape squad or the homicide squad, you know, there were some terrible things that we saw. But I feel like if there were there were a few police friends that I could speak openly with, but very, very few, because, again, you wanted to be seen as somebody that could manage the stress, yeah. that could manage the horror. And if you started to open up that little, you know, uh, a little chink, let's say, some, you know, sometimes I'd think I could go right, you know, and tell them everything and just cry. Or like whatever. a waterfall. Absolutely. Mm. And so I had to keep things very, very controlled. Um, and also... You know, I can remember a time when um, I found a, a body, uh, this is when I was at the homicide squad, and I found a body in a tip. And it, um, there was a whole, oh, I don't know, hundreds of police searching and we were looking for a, a woman that had been um, murdered. She'd been cut up and uh, with a chainsaw and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, I found her. I actually found the bag and her in the bag. And... I can remember being so euphoric initially that we'd found her mm. um, because I, she didn't have to end her life in some filthy, rat-infested, asbestos-ridden tip. But then when the reality, uh, I remember we everyone else went um, uh, up to what we call Cup of Tea 200, the caravan with the cup of teas and the pies and the pies and chips, yeah. nothing like, um, <laughs> you know, anything healthy. But we were waiting for crime scene and come on, phrase. That's what they used to call me, phrase. Come on, phrase. And you know what? I couldn't leave her. So I sat there with this dead body in a bag because I just thought I couldn't leave her alone again because she'd been alone there. Well, I don't know. She'd been buried, buried about five weeks. She'd been picked up by the local um, uh, rubbish collection. Her husband had put her in this just throwing her out in the household rubbish. You can't imagine. And mm. and I can remember while I was waiting for the crime scene and they're all having their cup of teas and it was a bit sort of creepy. Yeah. I also remember 
I bawled and bawled. I turned away so that nobody could see because I was so ashamed and embarrassed, I suppose, a bit humiliated that I couldn't hold my emotions. Like, isn't mm. that – like, that's crazy stuff. Isn't isn't it? Like, what sort of human being could deal with that? But for yeah. some reason we all do the same thing, police. It's like I'm right, you know, okay, it's a dead body in a bag. Let's move on. You know, it was <laughs> crazy. Wow, I couldn't even imagine. It It seriously, it just sounds surreal, that whole experience. Yeah, it is surreal. Yeah. At that time, was did anyone approach you? Were you, like, immediately after as well, what was your reaction? I hid my reactions. Yeah. And we all went back to the office. Um, see you later. Have a great night. Uh, oh, you know, not, not a great night, but, you know, see you in the morning. We come back the next morning and there's okay. another job to do. You know, it was just continual. Mm. It's really full on. Yeah, it is. Was, was this at a point, um, well, when this happened, were you at all considering or I guess internally reflecting on your mental space or, or did this not even – become a thought until much later in the piece? I think number one is I wouldn't admit it if I was to myself. I wouldn't admit it. Uh, I might think to myself, um, oh, that was a bit tough. Um, God, you know, why am I feeling so angry? Oh, well, you know, maybe because of what I saw yesterday. But you, you would you would never um, admit it. But I think that's the thing with mental health or mental illness, any um, issue, you can't actually fix something until you admit it yourself, until you yeah. think, you know what, I am not coping here. But no, I never thought like that. I just thought yeah. I need a few days off if I got a bit tired. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, well, we were doing 20-hour days, you know. So you'd make excuses. You'd think, wow. I'm just, I'm tired. Tired. Uh, of course I'm going to be tired, you know, so you you can make all the excuses in the world. It is. It's the hardest step, isn't it, recognising that there is a problem? Yeah. It's a bit of a unplanned question, but I'm curious, because of the specific areas of work that you were focusing on for so long, being, I guess, like the, the rape areas, um, domestic violence, was there periods there where you were, I mean, it's, it's a stereotype, but it's, that's also shows that it is more often than not men that are committing these crimes against females. Did that impact the way that you were seeing men around you? And did you notice, um, I guess, fear creeping into your everyday life when you were around men? No, it didn't affect me at all. Um, I'm very fortunate um, that I have a very mm, uh, caring, loving um, husband. My dad was also a really caring man. Um, and most of my, well, not most, all of my friends are great men. So I was able to put that aside because policemen are different. Yeah. They um, often have, we used to refer to as, refer to it as the homicide squad strut and it'd be chest out you know and pardon me my shit doesn't stink you know I'm pretty damn good <laughs> that was a very typical homicide squad or squad maybe even policeman you know like mm -hmm. um but I knew that it was they were different um and don't get me wrong most of the men I worked with in policing were Fabulous. Yeah. But they did have that facade, but so did I, you know? Yeah. So, but yeah. no, it didn't, it didn't um, uh, change my view on men. I love men, always have, always will. Um, you know, we are very different, but I celebrate our differences. I, I never, very rarely have I ever thought, oh, every now and then, I suppose with domestic violence, I think, what is it about men? 
that they 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 um, they deal with their emotions with aggression. Yeah. And again, I think we're all, you know that's changing. But what is it about men where they have to fight one another, kill one another? You know, mm. go out with the girls like we do and just have a bit of fun, have a bit of a laugh. Yeah. You know, like share some intimate, some um, oh, I don't know, share some deep stuff rather than getting pissed and telling them how you know great him. Oh. What is it a bit? That's what I mean. I love them, but they drive yeah, me nuts. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, maybe it is partly because they they are less inclined to sit down with their girlfriends like we are and have a chat when things yeah. are getting rough. It's that pent up frustration, and yeah. I like you say, it is getting better. And I know amongst male friends of my own that they're they're getting better at communicating, oh, yeah. um, and it's becoming more normal, I guess, for for boys to go out and have a chat with their male friends rather than have a beer and just get drunk and do silly yeah. things. You know, they're more open to actually having conversations about things that they're feeling. And, and they're starting um, to, you know, men are starting to go out for coffees now, which I love. Yeah. Know? And they, they're getting better, but um, they've got a long way to go. Oh, yeah, I it hasn't changed my view on, on men at all. In fact, I think I probably appreciate... Um, men maybe a bit more because I've seen so many that don't deal with their issues. But yeah, my husband's a very caring, gentle. He's a gentle man, and I think I don't know. Maybe I attract those sort of people. Who knows? <laughs> Do you think? Um, was your husband picking up on things when the stress of your work? started to really take an impact on you was he picking up on things before you did yourself I um possibly a little bit but not a lot because again I was keeping everything like a secret um yeah but also I didn't realize how sick I was I didn't realize how traumatized I was how affected I was um over a period of time, it just sort of, well, I thought it snuck up on me, but it didn't. I mean, it was always there and it was just very slowly getting worse and worse. But I can remember um, in the last stages before I actually went off on on sick leave, um, when I sort of had um, a bit of a breakdown, I suppose, in a way, mm. but I can remember the signs when I look back, they were there, but I was ignoring them. Yeah. For instance, I was um, in bed. My leg would shake to the point where, like, it would shake like this, my leg, and I couldn't stop it. And I'd get up and go into the spare room, and I'd say to them, and I was also getting terrible migraines. Yeah. Um, so, of course, I didn't know what was going on. But I'd say to my husband, oh, I've got a really bad headache. I knew there was something wrong because my leg mm. was shaking so much. And I was shaking. Like my my yeah. um, hands would shake I could, to the point where I couldn't read my own writing. Um, and I think it all just started to, to build up. I was becoming very overwhelmed, um, very confused. Um, I, oh, the... I was having a, um, an enormous amount of headaches. I was becoming really hypervigilant, like thinking that I had to keep the whole of Victoria safe and it was my responsibility. Mm. I was also, pardon me for being so honest, but I was also um, um, physically becoming very sick. So I was throwing up and I also had diarrhoea, really chronic almost diarrhoea, but I was trying to keep that a secret, like looking back, I was just deteriorating. Yeah. But I kept thinking I was just tired and a bit overworked. Looking back, the yeah. signs are all there, Carl. They're all yeah. there. Um, it's full and, on. And just a, another, like I'd never heard of the word flashback or trigger. I mean, mm -hmm. I may have heard of it, but I don't think I ever un really understood it. Yeah. But you know the, um, the body I was telling you about that, um, I found in the tip. It was in a blue bag. Yeah. 
And so what would happen was um, every time I saw a blue sports bag, even a, a, a sports bag, it would start to, you know, uh, something would happen inside me where I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be sick. And then I'd become all um, hot, like I'd start sweating. And looking back, um, that was obviously my mind was going back to finding the body. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know why, but there's a lot of bodies that are in blue tarps. You know, I found lots of bodies in blue tarps. What it is about blue tarps, I don't know. But just something minor. I would leave my work of the night. This is when things were getting pretty bad. Yeah. And I didn't understand what was going on, but I'd leave my work of the night and there was a building site opposite my work, my, the police station I was working at. Yeah. And, of course, if it rained, the builders would put tarps over everything and they were always blue tarps. So I would drive out and look at this blue tarp and think, oh, my God. But I didn't put two and two together, you know, mm. and... I had um, some terrible, uh, I won't go into it, but I had some terrible jobs with um, uh, deaths of babies. And so what would happen is every time I saw a baby or I saw a little doll, I would just become almost a wreck. I just had to get, Mm. like a panic attack. Yeah. And um, also little kids because I'd seen some terrible stuff, cruelty with little kids, little, um, yeah, little kids, like I'm talking, I don't know, from, say, five under. And so I found myself isolating. I didn't want to go out because everywhere you go, there's kids. There's a trigger. There's a trigger. Mm. And, yeah, it all just started becoming um, unbearable. What sort of um, time frame was this all unravelling for you? Was it quite a quick succession between not really having any physical symptoms to this is too much, I need to actually step away from work? Or did that kind of go on for a 12-month period? Um, You may wonder why I, I smile there. You know, I look back and at the academy, Um, I saw we went to the um, coroner's court to learn about what happens with um, dead bodies. I'd never seen, apart from my dad, um, I'd never seen a dead body. And um, there was a a little baby that had passed away. um, And I remember uh, from that moment, I can remember being really affected. Um, So it was a slow burn, let's say over 20, hmm, I reckon for about 10 years before I, it all culminated, I reckon for 10 years I was struggling. It was just getting worse and worse. Um, But I kept making excuses, you know. Um, But I suppose that, that shaking and the, flashbacks and everything that probably happened for about four or five years that's me it's so full-on when did it get to a point where you were able to realize that it was getting to be a problem um I had been to um I had done lots of uh, warrants with pedophiles um and I went to this particular warrant and we seized um, over 1,700 child pornographic videos, not photos. Oh, yes. Videos. I'm just remembering this story from the lunch and it's full on, but continues yeah. because it's really disturbing. Yeah. And somebody has to look at those photos to assess them for the court. It's got to be the police. Somebody's got to do it. And, of course, I wanted, pardon me, I wanted to get this prick. And the only way I could was to prove to the court what I had seen. So I had to look at them all. And in those days, we had to grade every single one of them. And the grading was from one to five. One is still bad, but five is just, you know, well, this was off the scale. 1,700 of them. It took me two days. And I remember going home um, the second night and, of course, I couldn't sleep 
and I'm thinking, well, of course, I can't sleep. It was very disturbing. But then uh, the following day, I had a committal and I was the, uh, the informant in this committal for a young girl that had been raped by a father and his son. And she couldn't get, I, I just couldn't get her to court. She was just so nervous, um, anxious. It was terrible. And somehow, you know, I'd put my arm around her and because I'm thinking to myself, if I can't get her to court, they're going to get away with it. Okay. Yeah. She won't give the evidence. So I got her to court. She's giving evidence and she was getting hammered by, uh, the, by the defence. And I can remember thinking to myself, this is so wrong. She's been raped all over again. And I thought, well, I was responsible for that because I had got her to court um, mm. and to have these men convicted she had to give the evidence. Really anyway, I remember thinking, um, you know, this is all wrong, it's all my fault. And I went across, well, I don't remember going across the road, but I was having a coffee across the road at a coffee shop and the court staff came over and they said, Narelle, what are you doing here? And I didn't, I didn't sort of know where I was and I'm thinking, what am I doing having a coffee, I'm supposed to be running a committal. I'm supposed to be um, locating witnesses. I'm supposed to be basically holding the hand of a victim. I'm uh, exhibits, you know, it, it's quite a, a very responsible role. And you know what? I was in La La Land. Yeah. And I found out later that my mind had just, when I was in court and I'm thinking this is all wrong, she's been raped all over again, my mind had just, shut down and it was an amnesia event so I don't I still don't know how I got over to the coffee shop I don't know how I ordered the coffee I don't know but that night I went home thinking why was I at the coffee shop how why would I be doing that when I'm supposed to be running a committal and that that week I can tell you now it was in May of 2012 that week I realised there was something not quite right. Something was going wrong. And it took me another couple of months. And I think I thought, I'm not getting any better. My diarrhoea was just out of control. One good thing about diarrhoea is that I lost a lot of weight. <laughs> um, but <laughs> just I went to setting. a <laughs> Oh, goodness me. But, but I went to a doctor. I finally yeah. relented. Pardon me, and I went to a doctor, my doctor, and he happened to have done PTSD was his um, uh, thing, you know, that was his interest. Yeah. And when I told him, he said to me, I think you, you've got PTSD. And I didn't even know what it was. And when, when I asked you, When you went to the doctor, was it um, – did you have any idea what was going on? Or did you just think that it was something purely physical? I think by that stage um, I didn't know what was going on mm. and the thought of um, a, a mental illness never crossed my mind. Like, you know, I think, how dumb. <laughs> but I just didn't think. Like, I just thought maybe I've got cancer, you know, I've got diarrhea, maybe I've got bowel cancer, I don't know what I thought. And when he said to me, I think you've got PTSD, I actually said to him, what's that? And when he told me there were these... You know, it was like you'd go, you're, you're feeling um, anxious, yeah, and it'd go through everything, and everything yeah. was a tick in my mind. And that's when um, I thought he was the one with the problem, not me. And he said, let's send you to a, um, a psychologist and just see what they say. Well, you know, two out of two, you've got PTSD, which we now call PTSI, because PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder, it has a very, very negative connotation, the word disorder. Mm. So what we're trying to change the, uh, the, the word, the mindset now to post-traumatic stress injury because yeah. it is injury. So, but when I got told or when it was fairly much confirmed that I had a mental illness, 
I was so humiliated, embarrassed, ashamed of, you know, I was. I thought people, well, not I thought, people would think Narelle, um, you know, she can't cope, she's weak, uh, you know, all the, like the stigma around mm-hmm. mental illness is huge and it's real and that's why we need to talk more about this, you know, and be more open um, because if we don't, people are going to think like me and it's doing more damage not mm. acknowledging it, you know. Yeah, it's horrible. When you first left that, that doctor's appointment, what was your mindset after that? Were you... Um, He's wrong. Yeah, I thought so, yeah. Yep, yeah, um, I haven't got PTSD. But then I started to do a bit of research, Google, you know, Dr Google, and uh, I trusted him and I thought he's not wrong. There is yeah. something wrong. Anyway, I made up all the excuses in the world. I lied to people about um, why I was off work. I lied to the people at work. I just said, um, you know, I need a bit of a break. Um, I would never tell them that I had a, mm. I'd been diagnosed with a mental illness. Oh, my God. Anyway, eventually I had to because I was just so... Um, I was real, really damaged. And it wasn't until I went on work cover, again, yeah. another stigma. I was very embarrassed about being on mm. um, work cover, on sick leave. But it actually worked because it meant that I didn't have to go back to the workplace that stressed me out. Oh, my God. Looking back, I'm thinking, Narelle, what were you thinking? You know, like... And I really wanted to go back because I loved policing. Isn't it funny? I loved it, even though it was all this damage, but there's so many people you can help, so much you can do people in their worst time. Um, But in the end, WorkCover sent me to a PTSI clinic um, at the Austin Hospital for police, and that was a game changer because they made me realise I was very, very sick. And if I wouldn't have done the program and um, uh, got better, I probably would have ended up in hospital. I said the next step to that amnesia event at the court would have Mm. been a psych hospital. Mm. And that frightened the life out of me. And that's when I thought, you know what, I can't afford to go back because... Somebody could come in, even if I was doing, you know, like watch house duties, you know, where people come in and, oh, I've lost my wallet. But they could also say, and this has happened a few times with me, oh, I've been raped or I've just murdered someone down the street. or So you don't know what's coming. Anyway, in the mm. end, I realised I couldn't go back. But out of adversity. I started to think about what I could do. Like it took me 12 months to sort of start healing I suppose but you know the hardest part of healing was accepting and that's what I was saying before until you accept that there's something wrong that needs fixing you'll never get fixed you'll never Mm. start healing and out of that um, course at the Austin that's when I realized you know what I am very very sick um yeah, anyway, I oh, I just sort of fell into talking about my mental health. Literally, I did. I fell into into it. Um, somebody asked me, a Rotary Club asked me to talk, and I thought, you know what, I might give it a shot. And anyway, from there, I was a guest on a, um, Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Yeah. Michelle Laurie's brother-in-law heard me talk somewhere, and Michelle contacted me and Anyway, I got really following and that's when Michelle said, you know what, I think you should go out on your own. I think you've got what it takes. And here I am, Narelle Fraser Interviews. Who would have thought? (laughs) But I share, I share my, the mental, I'm very, very open about it now because I love what you do. As in, you allow me now um, to share my story and, to talk about mental health and stop this bloody stigma 
and trying to normalise mental illness as just another illness. Mm. Especially in the workplace, it's so important because realistically, we're spending the bulk of our lives in our workplaces. And if we're constantly burying things under, Mm. at some point it shows up in the body. Yeah, it does. Were you able to... uh, Actually, coming back to the treatment, and it's absolutely okay if you don't want to talk about this aspect of things, but... um, what did that treatment process look like and how how does one go about addressing PTSI in those early phases of a treatment? What we did at, at the Austin was actually um, share uh, right down into that deep um, part of your soul, of your heart, where you don't want to tell anyone what you've seen because it is so traumatic to relive it because you've suppressed it for so long and it was very, very traumatic but it was also very healing because it's like I lifted a lid and I actually, it's not for everyone but I found speaking about it and telling people was something I had never done and I found that really cathartic. Um, I also, um, I did what all the professionals told, because I had to, with work cover, I had to go and see um, a lot of um, mental health professionals like psychiatrists and psychologists to justify me being on work cover. And, you know, I think I saw about 12 psychiatrists. I had to tell every single one of them over and over again, Personally, I think work cover just needed someone to say she's okay, she can go back to work. And I mm-hmm. think that's what they, I don't know, but I think that's what they were doing. And, you know, not one person ever said she could go back to work. In fact, I was told I would never work full time again. I was that damaged. Now, I've lost my train of thought. What was your question? <laughs> CDs um, and I I learned about give, basically giving my mind a rest. Um, I uh, exercised a lot, you know, just got out on my bike. Um, I I don't have a television at home. My husband and I haven't had a television for God, I don't know, about thirty years. It's not that we don't like telly, but when we first um, got together, my husband said you want to try life without a TV? And I was like, what about the footy? You know, what about the front bar? What about all these great programs? And he said, because I want to talk. And I thought, you have met your match here. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, but in the end, I think that was a godsend because um, I, I cannot get over all the, um, the shock and horror on the TV now and all the bad stuff. And I think... It's really glorified too. It's yeah, it is. kind of celebrated. Yeah, so not having a TV, it was a, a great um, release. I didn't have to sort of look at all this stuff and hear about it. Um, I also tried everything that, uh, that, as I said, the professionals said, I... Um, I tried a lot of natural things like um, um, orthobionomy, which is about um, um, positive and negative energy. Like I tried everything. Yeah. And something worked. I don't know what it was, but something did. But I think the main thing was I got away from the workplace that was creating the stress. Mm. And I think all those things combined, and I think, my main message is to try 
everything. And if somebody is going to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and they just don't feel that the person gets them or that they're wasting their time, I don't like this person, I'm not getting that vibe, go and try. Yeah. Just keep going until yeah. you find somebody Find that them out. Mm. Because I found um, the most beautiful psychologist and it made all the difference in the world because I trusted them. Oh, and that's another thing. I also did, again, they suggested it, but EMDR, eye movement, desensitisation and reprogramming. It is a system about, again, just getting all this, all this horror and all this out of my head, verbalising it and getting it out. Yeah. It's a system to do that. And... I, as I said, I don't know what worked, but it was a combination of all these things. Yeah, yeah. And it's putting in the work too and actually taking the steps because yeah. I I think that's another, I guess, barrier when um, anyone's dealing with mental health issues. You you might go to a, a therapist or psychologist or whoever it might be and expect, you know, to go once or twice and have all of the problems solved, but it's that's never going to be the case and it's going to be yourself putting in the hard work and actually implementing things daily and for these sort of things it's it's not just daily it's every hour you need to be noticing the thoughts in your brain re rewiring the way that you respond to those thoughts and it's it's hard work i think that's yeah, a really is. important message too about um not expecting to go to that first therapist and gelling really well it's a process and you quite often hear that people will need to bounce through a few different mm. specialists to find the one that matches for them. It's mm. not going to be, it's not easy. Mm. No, it isn't. And and also I think um, that for me um, talking about it was just so therapeutic um, and even now I now want to tell the world about all these terrible jobs I went to. And you know what, Tali, I can't. I can, but the people can't bear them. Yeah. So I remember I told one psychiatrist, I thought, you know what, you want to know what's wrong with me, I'm going to tell you. And in the end, it was like, try this for size. So I'd tell him something like, and I had one psychiatrist actually say to me, enough, Narelle, I, I, can't, I can't listen to that. And that was justification to me about how bad it must have been for a psychiatrist to actually say, I can't deal with this. It actually validated a lot of my um, my feelings. So, um, but the EMDR, I thought, was, um, again, probably a bit of a game changer. You know, and I tried, um, um, po I went to... Um, High, uh, what's that word? An orthobionomist and a, um, but I tried a lot of natural stuff. Yeah. Again, I I listened to the professionals, and one other thing, and I still feel embarrassed. I don't know what the right word is, but I withstood taking medication for years because of the of the stigma of taking medication for a mental illness. Mm. And I remember I sort of started to go a bit downhill after a couple of years, yeah. and that's when my doctor said, Narelle, I think you need to bite the bullet and just yeah. try some medication. And you know what, Carly, I, am, I still don't like um, admitting to people that I am on medication, but it's made the world a difference. And I think, what is it like? Mm. Everyone will say, "Oh, I took a, a tablet for a headache," and that's okay. Yeah. But somebody takes a tablet to sort of um, anxiety. Rebalance their chemicals in their brain. It, it's like, oh my god, I'm, and that's what I thought. Oh my god, I'm on medication, <laughs> but it's made the world a difference. Again, I listened to the professionals. I didn't because I didn't. I didn't want to go on medication. Maybe it's I might be on it for the rest of my days. I don't know. But I feel very normal again. <laughs> That's good. And I think often the case with the medication side, it's, 
it just allows you to come back to a level where you can actually start implementing the other the other things that you're working on with therapist or specialist yeah. of any sort. Because yeah. often you're at a place where that's the things that they're asking you to do are not even within reach. Your brain yeah. is already up here and it needs to be brought yeah. down to here so you can start thinking about these other sort of longer term solutions. So yeah. it's yeah. such a shame that there's stigma around it because it's it's it really doesn't need to be that way. And, but like you said, the more we talk about it, the more it normalises these things. And, um, and also, sorry, just one other thing. Yeah, that's right. Is there's not a quick fix. I would have seen um, my psychologist for probably about two years. Once a fortnight. It started off once a week, then it went to once a fortnight, and then it got to once a month. But it was her in the end that said, I don't think you need to come back, which was a great thing. But my point is, you're right, it takes a lot of work, a lot mm. of effort, a lot of pain sometimes to, you know, talk, to actually verbalise what's in here. And and it doesn't happen overnight. You've got to be patient. I could talk to you all day, Narelle, but I've got one last question for you. When you just as a matter of interest, I could talk all day too, in case you oh. <laughs> Yeah, I think the way they're the same, especially on these sort of topics. It's I think these sort of topics are so important and it's it is actually really hard to <laughs> wrap it up. Um but I would like to ask looking at workplaces, because I think a lot of these tools that we've got access to them outside of the workforce, but what what do you think we could be doing inside the workplace to just alleviate some of these stresses that build up so that we don't reach a point where we do need these extra support measures coming in outside of our work life what what do you think could be like a few practical tips that we could all be implementing um to actually be open and if i think tali you know hasn't been traveling too well she's not herself lately um she's a bit short-tempered whatever are you okay um, I can tell you now, if somebody would have said to me, are you okay, Narelle? I've noticed, blah, blah, blah. I know what I would have said. I'm fine, thanks. Mm -hmm. But I know I would have gone home that night thinking, why would somebody ask me, am I okay? What am I exhibiting? So it's about encouraging open mm. conversations. If you're worried about somebody, and maybe if you don't want to speak to them, um, maybe speak to their supervisor or but just do something like don't do nothing mm. um you know have these open conversations but also encourage i would think um maybe peer support is a great idea but often people don't feel comfortable speaking with their peers about something personal i would um encourage having um you know um um, an, uh, an employee assistance plan or a psychologist yeah. that people can ring um, with no um, consequences. Um, maybe just have somebody come in once a month, just, um, you know, and have everybody almost mandatory come in and speak to this um, person for 10 minutes, just a quick welfare you know, welfare check, how are you, what's going on? Um, and if somebody's in that room for half an hour, an hour, you might actually start to think, you know what, they're probably not coping too well. Oh, I just think having almost mandatory 12-monthly, six-monthly checkups with the staff and yeah. somewhere where they feel safe that they can talk about some issues or a phone line, a direct line they can talk to, something like that, but just encouraging open conversations. I think that's brilliant and I think it's something that for any sort of businesses that are listening in, if there's an upfront cost for that sort of thing, it would well and truly pay itself off over the long term in terms of staff retention, staff mm. productivity with being... Mm able to show up to work and just feeling that weight off your shoulders it would absolutely pay itself off but um 
Thank you, Narelle. I really appreciate your time and your openness as well. I think it's incredible the way that you tell stories and um, your willingness to be, I guess, vulnerable with your emotions. It, it opens the door for other people to do the same. So thank you. It's an absolute pleasure, Tali. Thank you. Coffin Bond Podcast is a product from Coffin Bond & Co, which we are an authorised representative of Gown Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Coffin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.